All right, church, today's going to be a little bit of a different uh, sermon in that it is not going to be going through the book of 1 Peter. We finished that last week. Um, and we're actually going to be going through a lot of different texts this morning. Uh, so if you don't have one of these sermon outlines, uh, there's a handsome young man who'd be happy to hand you one. So raise your hand and he will scamper in your direction. And I think I've probably mentioned before, I'm not a huge handout fan um, because I don't want to be constrained personally to the handout. So maybe that's selfish, but I guess I get to choose what I do and don't do. Um, But when when we go through uh, messages like this, and there's going to be lots of texts, and when we go through topical sermons, my desire is that you go back and follow up, that you check what I do, check what I say, because sometimes I'm going to be glancing off of a passage really quickly, and I don't want you to just take my word for it. I want you to, like a Berean, uh, go back to the Scripture and test what I say. So we're talking about the church today. We're talking about membership because this is, this is important. This is who we are. This is what we're doing We had a uh, message back in our What We Believe series when we were going through our statement of faith that talked about what the church is, and briefly it talked about what membership is and why membership matters. But this is something that the elders, we we talked about, and we thought this would be uh, worthwhile to cover in a little bit more explicit form as we anticipate putting together our first membership list. Now, We're going to cover two main things this morning, and as you'll see in your outline, one is the big picture, how everyone is part of God's one church, all believers are part of God's one church, and then secondly, what that looks like, what participation in God's one church looks like, and how that happens in the local church. And so we'll talk about those two things. But I did want to kind of give a little bit of a preamble before we get into this, because I think this really underlines why we're even talking about this. Because really, up until this century, or the last century, I forget that we're in the 21st century, really up until the 20th century, church membership was assumed. If you go back and you read even just accounts of the churches in Chester, The idea of membership, whether it be at the Congregational Church, the Baptist Church, um, the the church in in Longmeadow, which is now Auburn, or even what became the Methodist Church in in what is uh, now Fremont, that the idea of membership in these churches was just assumed that you were part of one of these congregations and that you had the responsibilities of membership. Uh, you certainly go back to the, the Puritan times and the settlement of the United States. You go back to the, the uh, Puritans in England and in the continent, the Reformers. You look back at the, the um, eras that preceded that. Church membership was just assumed. Now, there were some benefits to that. There was a lot of benefits to that. But as we often do in, in the name of kind of being progressive and moving forward, and certainly was what is kind of part and parcel of being Western American individuals, we like the idea of individualism. We like the idea of being free agents. We like the idea of doing what we want to do when we want to do it. And so consequently, that mentality, and then spurning what came before us, has really gotten us to a point in Christian culture 
where church membership is something that can be taken or left behind. Church membership is something that is really can be seen as for some people, but not for everyone. And unfortunately, it often gets bathed in the light of spirituality. I belong to Jesus. That's all that matters. Well, you take that mentality and you go through, say, a book like we went through in 1 Peter, and it's very hard to make heads and tails of what it means to submit to leadership unless you're submitting to a leader. It makes it very hard to care for the body unless we define who the body is. There's so many things that we saw even just in our study of 1 Peter that would be completely incomprehensible without the idea of what it means to belong to a local body of believers. So with that said, kind of as the preamble, why we're even talking about this, a concept that would be very difficult even to kind of explain to uh, our our forefathers in the faith 100 years ago, uh, let's go into this study. So the first thing I want to talk about, and again, this is something that we discussed uh, at length back when we were going through the, um, the What We Believe series, is what is the church? Now, the church is not something that was born on Pentecost, because all the church is, is the assembly of God's people. It's God's people come together. And God's people were meeting back before Pentecost. God's people were meeting before Acts 2. In fact, God's people have been together ever since the patriarchal period. And we see this promise given to God's people back in Genesis 35. In Genesis 35, God is talking to Jacob. Jacob, of course, is a pivotal figure when it comes to the idea of the gathering of God's people because Jacob had another name, that name, of course, being Israel. And so in Genesis 35, God appears to Jacob, and it says that God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padan Aram, and he blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. Thus he called his name Israel. God also said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and an assembly of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come forth from your loins. There's so much here, so many promises, things that we're actually going to be touching on in our next sermon series that starts next week as we go through Genesis. But the phrase that I want to hone in on real quick as we go through this kind of briefly is the fact that he promises that a nation and an assembly of nations shall come from you. God's promise to Israel is that he was not going to be one man through whom a promise came but that, he, that from him an assembly or a gathering or a group of people was going to come. Of course, this is a promise that was made to Adam in the, as they were leaving the garden. This was a promise that was made to Abraham and to Isaac. But here we really see it codified in language that becomes consistent from the time when God makes this promise to Jacob all the way through the rest of the Old Testament and into the New Testament. So we see the church's promised form in Genesis, the church's promised form, that the idea of one gathering of God's people is promised. Notice that he tells uh, Jacob, not only that he's going to be a nation, sometimes we think of things in a very, very small and condensed way when we think of the Old Testament. Yes, Israel is going to be a nation that comes from Jacob, 
but it's also an assembly of nations. Multiple peoples, multiple groups are going to come together and they are going to be God's assembly, God's gathering, and God's people. That's the church's promised form. We then see the church's initial form, the church's initial form in Exodus. In Exodus 35, it says that Moses assembled all the congregation of the sons of Israel and said to them, these are the things that Yahweh has commanded you to do. So again, this was a group of people in Israel. They certainly were a group of people. They were a group of people who were united by their faith in God. They were also united by their circumstances, their circumstances of persecution under Pharaoh. But one of the neat things that we see in Exodus 35, and Exodus 35 comes after Exodus 20. Exodus 20, as you probably know, is the giving of the Ten Commandments, the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. We've been through this in the last few months in our Bible reading plan. What we see in this moment in Exodus 35 is Abraham, or excuse me, Moses with the tablets and with the word of God, all of God's elaboration and explanations of the Ten Commandments, and he comes down to a gathered group of God's people, and he explains to them, and he gives them commandments, he gives them the statutes and the testimonies like we talked about this morning, and he, and he essentially preaches to them. Moses assembled the congregation. The interesting thing here that I just want to touch on, and again, this is a very, very brief cursory study of this, is that this idea of the assembly and this word in the Septuagint, so the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So oftentimes, what the early church would have been interacting with when they were reading the Old Testament would have been a Greek version of the Old Testament. The same word here for the assembly, for the congregation, is the word ekklesia, the word church that we use in the New Testament. So when the Holy Spirit inspired the the New Testament and used the word ekklesia, God was fully aware that the audience of the New Testament was used to seeing this word, ekklesia, what we translate as church, for understanding the congregation of Israel, all right? Let me say that one more time in hopefully a simpler way. That the same word that the early church saw in the Old Testament for the gathering of God's people that we often see as the assembly of Israel is the same word in the New Testament that we translate as church. It's the exact same concept, the gathering of God's people. And we see that in the church's initial form as Moses intercessor, pastor, shepherd, comes before his people. That then translates to kind of the place where we we usually think of the church starting in the book of Acts and where we see the church's present form. So this is where we are. We are in this becoming realized form. We'll see that what it looks like here in a minute in the future. But the church's present form is what we see in Acts chapter 9. It's what we see in Acts chapter 2. It's what we see in the rest of the New Testament. But in Acts chapter 9, it says, the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria were having peace, being built up, and going on in the fear of the Lord and the encouragement of the Holy Spirit. And it continued to multiply. A few things here. The church's present form in Acts 9.31. The church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria. So how many churches is that? 
the church throughout Judea and Galilee and Samaria. It's one church, but at the same time, it's multiple bodies. This is interesting, and this is important, especially as Acts gives us this explanation, this description of what church life looks like, that although there is one church, there are also individual, particular bodies of Christ's church. So it was understood early on in the book of Acts, in the life of the church, that there is one church, but that church manifests itself in various single and individual bodies throughout the region the gospel has gone. So we have the church's promised form in Genesis, the church's initial form in Exodus, the church's present form that we see in Acts. We also have the church's realized form, the church's realized form. So we have not arrived. Hopefully, we're all okay with understanding that we've not arrived yet, that we still have work to do, that we still have somewhere where we need to go. And we see that end point. We see the fulfillment of the church in the book of Revelation. So we see the promise back all the way in Genesis. We see it kind of going through a metamorphosis as God grows it, not in you know, one organism than another organism, but as one organism that is kind of growing. And the, some of the analogies that we see in, in God's word are a tree. So we have a seed, becomes a sapling, becomes a great tree, bears fruit, a building project. Actually, both of these uh, analogies we see in Ezekiel, um, uh, a building project that starts with a foundation and that grows into a greater building, into a temple of God. The church's realized form we see in Revelation 7. And John, the, the, the one who's giving the revelation of Christ, says that after these things I looked and behold, a great multitude which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands. And they cry out with a loud voice saying, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So, of course, this kind of looks like what we do. We just did that. We just sang three songs. We just heard the word of God. We, we read the word of God. We, we, we cooperated as we read God's word back, as we confessed, as we prayed. We're hearing God's word now. And so we're doing the same thing that this church in Revelation does. But the church that we see anticipated in Revelation is a perfected church. It is a fulfillment. It is a realized church version of the church. It is the church that has come to fruition. So what does this have to do with membership? Well, I think it's always important to know what the church is and who the church is and and why the church is. The church in its promised form, its initial form, its present form, and its realized form, what that shows us is that God's church is one church throughout space and time. God has one people, And so when we talk about church membership, we are not looking for one verse in the New Testament that says, thou shalt be a church member. There are so many things that we hold to and cling to dearly in our theology and our practice that don't have that kind of bare fact, um, uh, uh, explicit teaching. So what we see when we talk about church membership is the idea of belonging to a body, and identifying with a people is a Bible-wide, historical, redemptive concept that begins all the way in Genesis 
and continues all the way to Revelation. It flows through the entire narrative structure of Scripture. When you see people belonging to a congregation, an assembly in Deuteronomy like we're reading now in our Bible reading plan, when you're seeing these things being spoken by the prophets to the gathered people of Israel, when you're hearing teaching going to the early church in Acts or in one of the epistles, it is the same concept of belonging to a body of believers. Yes, in a grand scheme, one body, one church, capital C throughout space and time, but in a very particular focused way, in a local church, in, in your participation in our lives together. So that is a huge concept distilled down into four points, but it gives us a basis for understanding what it means to belong to God's church. So we've seen the big picture, what God's one church is. Now let's talk about true participation in the church, which happens in the local church. And kind of as a, as a reminder for the precedent for this, you cannot do the things that we talked about in 1 Peter for the last five, six um, months, hasn't been that long, maybe three or four months, without belonging to a local church. You cannot obey the commands that we talked about in 1 Peter without having leadership to submit to. You cannot obey the commands that we saw in 1 Peter without knowing who you are responsible to call your brother and sister in Christ from a congregational perspective. These things are essential to approach the New Testament. These things are essential for worship. These things are essential for discipline. These things are essential for the structure of church life. So we're going to go through five of these things, again, very, very briefly. The first one is that membership serves as a declaration. Membership serves as a declaration. What kind of declaration? Well, not enough space in your blank for this, but I'm going to say it anyway. It's a declaration of allegiance to Christ and his church. You are declaring who you belong to. You belong to Christ. That's true. But there's a lot of other things that you belong to. You belong to your family. You belong to your community. And you belong to your church. And saying that you belong to your husband or wife entails wearing a wedding ring. Saying that you belong to your community involves the address that someone sends you mail. You belong to your church by membership. So membership serves as a declaration of allegiance to Christ and his church. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and we actually referenced this once already this morning, but it says that by one spirit we are all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, we were all made to drink of one spirit, for also the body is not one member, but many. Through membership in a local church, we are declaring our allegiance to Christ and to his global church, to his universal church. We do this because there is only one body. There's only one way. There's only one church. There's not another option. It is not the church and option B. It is only Christ's church. Paul has the same example of the idea of a body in Ephesians chapter 4 when he talks about how he gave some as apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints and the work of service, building up the body of Christ. 
And what he goes on to talk about there is that Christ is the head, but Christ is the head of the whole body being joined and held together by what every joint supplies according to the properly measured working of each individual part, causing the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. The idea of the body building itself up requires there to be coordination, requires there to be organization. The body building itself up is not just a pile of ears and hands and feet and noses in a room hoping that somehow something comes together. It's kind of disgusting imagery, but it ought to be a little bit disgusting to think of the fact that God would work in such an unorganized and unstructured manner. But so far too often we think of the, this, that things are just going to occur organically, that just a bunch of people who love Jesus are kind of kind of run into each other, and that's how stuff's going to happen. But the fact of the matter is, is that God has given, as it says here, an anticipation of, of his analogy of the body of Christ. Paul says that there are pastors and teachers that are, that are given for the equipping of the saints in the work of service. We declare our allegiance to Christ and by declaring allegiance to his church. It doesn't mean that we worship the church. It doesn't mean that we glorify the church. It doesn't mean that we are churchians and not Christians. But we love Christ by being his bride, and his bride is the church. So membership, and that serves as a declaration of allegiance to him. Secondly, membership gives structure. Membership gives structure. What does it give structure to? Membership gives structure to the Christian life. Think about how much of what we do. Think of our small groups. Think of our, um, the activities that we participate in. Think about even think of what we are doing this coming week with having our small groups together and having something focused on our children. But beyond that, think about what we did here this morning already. We've had a time of corporate worship through song. We've had a time of corporate confession. We've had, we are, we're going to be engaging in, in the, the sacrament of the Lord's Supper later. We're going to be receiving a charge to go out. So all of the things that we are going to do as individuals, as families, and even corporately as we come together through this week are patterned after what we are doing in this moment for an hour and a half on Sunday morning. So although the worship service is not the church, the worship service is when we all come together and effectively get the structure and the rhythm by which the rest of our week ought to conform to. In many ways, the way that we worship on Sunday dictates the way that we live the rest of the week. And so membership in belonging to this, buying into what we are doing, buying into what a local church is doing, gives structure to the Christian life. The very first verse uh, that was preached as, uh, as the church plant was getting started, as it became New England Bible Church Chester, and as we moved to becoming Christ Covenant Church, was Acts 2.42. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayers. This is the structure of the church. We belong to this pattern. We belong to this structure. We belong to this life. One of the phrases I'm not a huge fan of is the idea of doing life together. And there's probably a better way to say it. I don't know why I don't like it. 
But that's kind of what it is. So I'm going to lean on it right now. It's living life in community, and it's living life in a way that isn't perpendicular to each other. It's living life in congruent ways, and we have a wonderful opportunity of doing that in this church where the vast majority of us come from a 10 or 15-mile radius, and we shop at the same one general store, and we use the same one post office, and we drive through the same one dangerous intersection. We live life together, and we do so in a way that is structured off of the commands that were given through Scripture that are patterned in this place and then go out through the rest of the week. So that's a very positive uh, example of the structure that membership gives. But there's another example, and it's kind of a, a dour one, and it's kind of a downer, but it's also something that I think is worth pointing out. In 1 John chapter 2, and 1 John is a, is a, is a wonderful epistle because it deals with some very, very hard questions particularly as it relates to sin and repentance, faith and belonging, uh, confession and rejection of the gospel. And in 1 John chapter 2, in talking about uh, a difficult situation that the early church was going through, John writes this, said, They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they were of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be manifested that they all are not of us. This is a hard text. This is a text talking about people who leave the church because of apostasy. They leave the church because of heretical teaching or abject rejection of the truth of what the church teaches of Scripture. And what John is saying here is that actually the structure of church life, the structure of the covenant community of the body of Christ provides a structure such that we know who is declaring allegiance to Christ and who is not declaring allegiance to Christ. Now, does this mean that, that the only people in Chester, or the only people in a, you know, a certain radius that believe in Christ are the people who are in this room right now or in similar places in the town? No, that's not what it means. But if somebody is doing their own thing, who is confessing a love for Christ but a hatred for his bride, or somebody who is spurning the clear teaching of the essentials of the truth of the Christian faith, that that is a structure by which we can say, this person needs to hear the truth. This person needs evangelism. This person needs to be pursued like the lost sheep. It gives us structure to say, this person is accepting or rejecting the word of God. Now, that's, this is by no means a cheery way to think of it, but this is a real and true application of the concept of membership. If someone desires to follow Christ, again, I'm going back to the well of 1 Peter and over and over again because it's what been, we've been bathing in for the last few months. If someone desires to be obedient to all the commands and exhortations in 1 Peter, it requires involvement in belonging in, the cooperation of, and the structure of a local church. Membership gives structure to the Christian life. Thirdly, membership determines the sheep. Membership determines the sheep. Membership determines the sheep, and, and I, I say this as, a, as an elder, as a pastor, but I say this simply from the Word of God, Membership determines the sheep that church leadership are responsible to provide care for. 
Membership determines the sheep whom church leadership is responsible to provide care for. This is a, a, a sticky topic that I, I really lean on the way that um, Pastor Tyler Thompson from NEBC, that he's talked about this. When we had membership classes in NEBC, this is one of the things that we talked about. When we say we want people to join, but if you don't join, it doesn't mean that you're given one option, and then once you don't sign the paper, we tear it up, and if you have an emergency, we're not going to come and help. That's not what this means. But as life gets busy, as the needs of the invested, participating members of the church rise, and the elder board is called to be devoted to those who declare allegiance and membership to their church, then who is going to receive the bulk of the energies and efforts of the leadership? The leaders are responsible for those sheep that belong to their flock. In Hebrews chapter 13, we have two, two verses here, verses 7 and 17. Um, in 7 it says, Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. And then in verse 17, it says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they will keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account, so that they will do this with joy and not with groaning, for this would be unprofitable for you. The key part of that text, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Your elders... John and Joe and David and myself at this present time, we are, have to give an account for the souls under our watch. Now, does that mean that if you sin, that we're responsible for that sin? Not necessarily. But does that mean if that through a, a spurning or a rejection of our shepherding duties, you fall into a, a false teaching or a pattern of sin? that we will be held accountable at some level? Absolutely. Now, this violates a, a, a lot of contemporary evangelical thought of what the church is, but this is what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that, our, that leaders are responsible for their flock. We are not responsible for every thought. We are not responsible for every step. We're not responsible for every webpage. We're not responsible for every book in your library. We're not responsible for those things. But for as far as it is within our power, we are responsible to shepherd under all circumstances. And so consequently, it's helpful to know who our sheep are. As we drive down the road, as, as John drives from his house to the center of town, as David drives from his house to the center of town, as Joe drives from his house to the center of town, which actually makes me think I should probably live this way because then we can really converge and cover everybody. But it doesn't mean that we have to stop at every house and knock on the door and say, you know, just checking up because that's not what we're called to do. We're not called to be responsible for everybody in the zip code, everybody in the area code, everybody with the Chester address. We're responsible for those who have declared allegiance to this church as they declare allegiance in Christ. Membership determines the sheep. And again, this is a text that we just read in 1 Peter a few weeks ago. Elders are commanded to shepherd the flock of God among you, overseeing not under compulsion, but willingly, according to God, and not for dishonest gain, but with eagerness. 
we are commanded to shepherd the flock of God among us. Now, of course, are there going to be circumstances where somebody walks in looking for truth, looking for belonging, looking for something that, that the Lord has laid on their heart, and there's going to be a, a time of working towards being a stranger to being a member of a family, and there's a, going to be a gray area in between? Absolutely. But we have the, a pattern for that. In fact, Christ's whole ministry is a pattern of, 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 of loving people and spending time with and discipling people who don't understand yet and don't belong yet and don't know what it means to be a disciple yet. But once someone is arriving at that point, the expectation is belonging and joining and being a member of the church. So membership determines the sheep whom church leadership is responsible to provide care for. And once we have sheep, membership allows for discipline. Membership allows for discipline. So once again, this is not the most cheerful or happy topic, but it's important. Now, we, again, this is not a popular concept within the context of the, of the contemporary evangelical church. But what would the other spheres the other uh, parts of our world be without discipline? What would your family be without discipline? What would your family be when, when a child errs if we don't stop and handle it in an appropriate, loving, and biblical manner? It would not go well. What happens when the government stops providing discipline? When the government defaults on its God-given um, uh, authority to bear the sword, to punish evildoers, and to reward the just. I think we're seeing that now, what happens when things invert, and it doesn't go well. So we expect that from our government. We expect that from our family. But again, the impulse in today's contemporary culture of the church says, you really need to watch it and take it easy on church discipline because we don't want to offend people. But Scripture is clear. Once more, this is not necessarily, as we talked about with, with the catechism and kind of made very clear, we don't do this because it was something that we dreamed up. But discipline and church discipline is a consistent picture of what the body of Christ ought to do. Of course, we have the passage in Matthew 18 it, it, it begins at the individual level. If your brother sins against you, show him your fault between you and him alone. And if he listens to you, then you have won your brother. What a blessing. People have often asked over the years, as I've been down at NABC, does, you know, why don't we practice church discipline? And what they say is, you know, why aren't we you know, raising the scaffold and marching people up there and you know, stamping scarlet letters on them? Why aren't we doing that? And we've always said... We do practice church discipline, but it, by God's grace, most of it happens with your brother's sin. Go show him your sin, and brothers are one. That's the kind of church discipline that we, we want to champion. That's the kind of church discipline that we desire, the kind of church discipline that actually probably starts and ends in your home more often than not. But notice as, as that continues on, and we're not going to give a full treatment in Matthew chapter 18 right now, but if it doesn't work between you and your brother— if it doesn't work between two or three witnesses, what is the next step? You go and you tell it to the church. So who is that? You get on Facebook and say, all local Christians come and gather. 
and I'm going to tell you about what this person did to me. You don't know him, and you probably don't know me. However, I'm going to tell it to the church. What does it mean to tell it to the church? Well, here, even Jesus, in in Matthew 18, prior to Acts chapter 2, I I think it's worth pointing out, expects that there's going to be a group of people that is familiar with both of you and can hold both of them accountable. And so this is the picture that we get and why the church is so important for discipline. Whether it does get to the point of excommunication and church discipline in that kind of capital D way, or if it happens more often than not the way that we want to see it happen, if your brother sins against you, go and show him your fault. But notice, too, that there's, another, there's other strong words in 1 Corinthians, and the church at Corinth had a lot going on, um, a, a lot of bad stuff happening. And one of the things that the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 it says that, are you not to judge those who are within the church, but those who are outside, God will judge. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. As we'll see here in a second, one of the other major reasons for church membership is a witness and a testimony to believers and to the watching world. And far too often in contemporary circles, the church is known for judging the outside while not treating what happens inside. The church is all about uh, going out and, and spraying um, all sorts of uh, you know, inoculations into the breeze while never taking the time to take the pill that it needs to swallow to heal itself. Are you not to judge those who are within the church, the Apostle Paul says. One of the most dangerous things that can happen in a church is to fight the culture war without fight, fighting the, for the integrity of the body. And this doesn't happen only through church discipline in the formal way of putting people up on the stocks on stage. I don't have stocks here. They might be in the basement. There are chains in the basement. But we're not going to get to that point, Lord willing. But it means dealing with the contagions that exist. Because an infirm body can't go fight the fight. An infirm body cannot raise the voice of praise to a watching world. So membership allows for discipline. Membership allows for the the writing of wrong teaching. Membership allows for the writing of, 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 of erring thoughts when it comes to what Scripture says and what the prevailing notions of the world are. Membership allows for discipline. And fifth and last, membership is a witness. Membership is a witness. What kind of witness? It's a witness and it's a testimony to other Christians and to the community. I had this question just uh, this week from a a young woman at uh, NEBC at one of the studies I was doing. And, And she asked, how do we explain church membership to all those people who were parts of these big megachurches where there's just rampant corruption and there's rampant sin and there's all sorts of manipulation going on. How do we talk about biblical church membership in the light of all these podcasts and all these documentaries and all this bad stuff coming out about people who were heavily invested and involved in churches? How do we talk to that person? I think it's a wonderful question. But I think it starts with saying, that's not true. That's not real. That's not right. That's not good. That is the aberration. 
What we see in these podcasts and in these documentaries and we see in the news, that's not what is real. What is real is what happens in churches like ours. And this is not to puff ourselves up. This is to stand on the word of God. What is real and what is true is what is happening by the countless small churches that never make the news, that never are, are embroiled in corruption, that never find their way onto a podcast or into a documentary or onto a book chronicling all the bad stuff, but are carrying on and doing the work of Christ based on his word. That is what is real and what is true. We don't base the idea of fatherhood on a bad father, but on the biblical pattern of fatherhood. We don't base government on what we see with our eyes and what we experience in 21st century United States. We look to God's pattern of law and government. And similarly, we don't look at the megachurches and the, the horror stories that we see in the news when we talk about church membership. We look at God's pattern and how it is being faithfully executed and carried out by his faithful church. And so membership is a witness and a testimony to other Christians. By joining a local church, by joining Christ Covenant Church, by doing so in a way that is biblically consistent and is humble and is following God's pattern, it is a testimony to those Christians who have been burned by other churches. It is a testimony to those Christians who have experienced difficulty, who have seen inappropriate leadership and money management and worship and all of those things. But it's also a testimony to the community that we belong to each other. We commit to our spouse in marriage. We commit to our cable company. We commit to our solar company. We commit to, to, to so many things. Our car lease. We commit to our mortgage. We commit to so many things in the world. Committing to our church is not only biblically based, but it's a testimony to a watching world that we have that same level of commitment to a body of believers that we do to the way we get high-speed internet and the way that we have a telephone. In Matthew chapter 5, it says, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how will it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and be trampled underfoot by man. You are the light of the world. And this is a, a plural you. If, if, if you've thought this is you, like you are a special little light, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Wonderful song. John said he'd put it in the mix sometime in the coming weeks. No, he didn't. He never said that. But this is a plural you. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. You are a city set on a hill. Not you as individuals, not even you as families. You, in the us sense, are a city on a hill. Now, we are in the remarkable place where we are probably the group of highest people in Chester right now, from an altitude standpoint. I don't know if that's true or not. But we actually have our physical... Jason's shaking his head, so I'll fact check that later. Um, we actually have a place of prominence where we are. And so in this building, 1910, floor is a little bit wonky, AC, when it's not air conditioning, the heat is not exactly perfect. But you know what? We are at a prominent place. 
And so by joining this group of people, joining that group of people who allow their kids to run outside in, in, in that grass by that intersection every Sunday, and they're kind of being nice to each other, where their doors are open and people have cups of coffee, where we are lighting Christmas trees and we are playing music for events and we are doing things for the town, this is one way that is girded by the gospel by which we can be a city on a hill. We are a city, an outpost of God's kingdom within a town. The town of Chester is real. The town of Chester is tangible. The town of Chester is a thing, but the city of God existed long before Chester was a thing, and it's going to exist long after it is. And so this outpost, this city, on this hill, in this place, is something that is profound that we are building by belonging to one another. And it's not some sort of amorphous thing. A city on a hill, is, it's not something that's just kind of an idea. It's a real thing that has real citizenship, that has real belonging, that has real structure, that has discipline, that has all of these things that we've been talking about. And once we belong... We have a witness and a testimony, and our light shines before men in such a way that they may see our good works and may glorify our Father who is in heaven. Membership is a gospel issue. And now, notice, I want to be very clear when I say this. The gospel is not just salvation. Because is membership a salvation issue? No, you don't have to join a church before you're saved. That's by no means is that the truth. It is not a gospel issue in that way. But the gospel is about salvation, but it's also the gospel. Jesus says this over and over and over again in the books, the gospels, that the gospel is not just the gospel of salvation, but the gospel of the kingdom of God. And so membership in a local church, the structure of a local church, participation of a local church, all of those things come together for the benefit of the kingdom of God when we declare our allegiance to him. It's a gospel issue. And in consequently, as we heed the gospel call for the kingdom, then, as we just read a moment ago in Matthew chapter 5, our light shines in such a way that men may see our good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Our gospel participation in the membership of a local church for the benefit of the kingdom of God is the vehicle and the channel that God will use to draw other people to salvation and be a part of his kingdom. There's other things that we could talk about with, with how membership is a witness. In John chapter 13, it says that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you will also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. It's hard to love one another, as we said before in First Peter, as we studied First Peter, if you're not with one another. In, in Ephesians chapter 3, it says that, that it is through the church that the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places know the wisdom of God. It's, a, it's a, a witness and a testimony, not just to each other, not just to the watching world, but actually to the spiritual powers at the power of God. Because what will not withstand the gates of hell? It is Christ's church. It is not you as one lone soldier running across a battlefield. It is Christ's church. Well, church, we could go on, and, and I encourage you to do so. I encourage you to go back through and utilize these, uh, this sheet and the, the texts that are in there. 
as you think about this, but the elders of, of Christ's covenant have, have uh, decided that we, we do want to have a formal membership list for all the reasons that we went through here and countless other ones. We're also standing upon the, the, the legacy of, of, of 19 plus generations of churches that have pursued this to identify who their membership is, to identify who are the sheep that the leadership ought to take care of, to identify who is desirous of that discipline, not just the discipline of excommunication, but the good, godly discipline that we all ought to strive for. And so on the back of your sheet is a, is a, a draft of, of, of what this will look like, what we will be asking of you. And so I would encourage you to look at that because we will be reaching out here in the coming days and weeks now that we've kind of established a precedent for it. So here's my encouragement for you. Think about this. Pray about this. Read through these texts. Come ready to, to talk about the questions. What do, you, what do you want to know more about? What is a little bit, un, what makes you unsure? And, and this is completely legitimate, how have you seen this done previously that you have felt like it wasn't quite right? We want to talk about those things with you. Because our desire is not to have some sort of list like there was a, uh, so that there could be a church tax. When you talk about church membership in Chester, you go back to the early 19th century, and that was one of the big debates regarding who was a member of which church, is who got to collect the tax. We don't do that. We don't have a tax. But there's all sorts of ways that church membership has been misused in the past, and we want to make sure that it's being used in a good and godly way. Well, Something else that church membership is, is important for is for the participation in the worship service. Now, we don't have, and, and we, we won't have, the position of what would be called closed communion. Closed communion is held by some good Bible-believing churches, which essentially says that only uh, members in good standing may partake of the Lord's Supper. And there's lots of good reasons for that. But we feel like there's more good reasons to have what is called open communion. But open communion doesn't mean anyone and everyone. Open communion doesn't mean low bar communion. Open communion doesn't mean cheap communion. Open communion simply acknowledges that the Lord's Supper is for those baptized believers who are in Christ, who are in good standing with him, not by what they have done, but by what Christ has done and who are good standing with their brother and sister in Christ. In 1 Corinthians, those kind of those scary texts that I alluded to a few minutes ago come on the heels of Paul talking to a church that was actually incurring judgment on themselves because they were coming to the Lord's Supper without dealing with the problems with their brothers and sisters in Christ. And how do you know who your brother and sister in Christ is if not through mutual membership in a local body? And so we invite you to the Lord's Supper. It's his supper. He is the host. We are not the host. It is his table. It is not our table. And it is a wonderful opportunity to remember what Christ has done, to remember presently what he's doing, and remember that we will all be gathered like we read in Revelation chapter 7, all together, tribes, tongues, and nations at the feast of the Lamb. But that feast has already started. The lamb was the one who instituted that feast. As David will read here in a minute, he is the one who gave those words of institution. So the supper of the lamb, which we are anticipating, is actually something that we are having, and this sounds crass, the hors d'oeuvres for, 
now, and we will up until we have that great marriage feast of the Lamb. So I'll pray, and I'll have uh, John uh, come forward to lead us in a song. We'll ask you to come and receive the elements and go back to your seat, and then David will uh, lead us in the Lord's Supper. Will you pray with me? Lord, I pray that it is your word that speaks most profoundly in these moments. Dozens of references, dozens of texts, but one truth that you have one church. Lord, Christ Covenant Church, established 2022, is not doing something new. We're not doing something novel. We're not doing something different. Leaning upon your word and looking at the footsteps and the pathways that have been trod by countless generations before us, we seek to honor you and honor your word through having a church that seeks your word, seeks your will, seeks to love one another, seeks to enjoy sacrament, seeks to minister to the community. We see membership as the way this happens. We see this as a way to declare our allegiance to you and to your church. We see this as a way to give structure to our lives. We see this as a way that we know who the sheep are, both our leadership and each other. We see this as a way for discipline when we err, and we will inevitably err because we are fallible and we are people. We also see this as a way for a witness and a testimony to each other and to a watching world. So guide us. Guide us not just as individuals, but guide us together, Lord. You have a church. You have people, but your people are in an assembly. They are in a church. We thank you for that. In the name of your Son, we pray. Amen.